David said, the closeness and the intimacy that you have already given me is almost too wonderful for me to comprehend. Verse 7 says, where could I go from your spirit? Where could I run and hide from your face? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the realm of the dead, some translations will say the place of the dead. Some will say Sheol. Some translations make the word Sheol into the word hell, which is not entirely accurate, but it is important in this context. You're there too. If I fly with the wings into the shining dawn, you're there. If I fly into the radiant sunset, you're there waiting. Wherever I go, your hand will guide me. Your strength will empower me. It's impossible to disappear from you or to ask the darkness to hide me, for your presence is everywhere, bringing light into my night. The presence of God in your life is ingrained in your human experience, and it is not conditional upon your behavior, your belief, or your location. The presence of God will, you, will follow you into the depths of hell if you choose to go there. I've heard some people say that hell is the absence of God. Biblically speaking, hell is the presence of God. Because he fills all things with the word of his power... Even when we try to move away from him, and even when we try to resist him, and even when we work against his presence, he is unequivocally and unapologetically with us. He takes up all the space. And again, not just as an observer, not just as a watcher, but as a participant in your life and in your experience. Sometimes we as believers are the worst at appreciating what God has given us. I'd like to think that the tax collectors and sinners were more comfortable around Jesus because they already disqualified themselves on the basis of their behavior. It's us religious folk who make God's presence conditional. And when I say to you that God is willing to follow you even into the depths of hell, I can tell that some of you and some of me doesn't actually believe that. God isn't just everywhere in the abstract. He's everywhere you are experiencing the life you have with you. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he's not acquainted with you scientifically. He's acquainted with you as intimately as anyone can ever really know you he understands you, and he understands your heart. And David says, if there was a place that I could hide that was dark, if there was a shadow I could cower in, if there was some shame that could cover me, even there you would be with me. Because you understand my heart, and you read my heart like a book. In fact, David goes on to say that the darkness isn't even really dark to you. There's no place to hide from God's perception of you. 
Because the Holy Spirit is also the spirit of understanding, which means that God understands you better than you understand yourself. Have you ever gotten lost in that thought about who you really are? Like, you're located inside your own body, but you don't really know what other people's experience is like inside their body and inside their mind. So your consciousness is somewhere inside your body, and you're having this human experience, and you think you understand yourself, and you tell yourself a story that strings together all your experiences and all your history, and you give that consciousness through time a name, well, really, your parents gave it a name, but it's me, it's I. The famous philosopher Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. We have these thoughts and these feelings and this perception of life, and we know who we are. And yet the large majority of the atoms in our body are replaced with every eight years or so. And if you zoom in scientifically, if you zoom in right to the boundary between our skin and the air around us, the line gets a little fuzzy. And if you look into the universe, you see that there's billions upon billions upon billions of light years of stars. And then if you zoom into the smallest particular matter, you see that there are particles that lead to more particles that lead to more particles. And it seems as though both the great beyond is infinite and it seems as though the very smallest thing is infinite. And strangely enough, scientifically speaking, we are exactly in the middle between the very smallest and the very largest thing in the universe we can measure. And we have this human experience where we think and we feel things and we believe we know ourselves and we move through life as a particular consciousness with a particular self-understanding. All the while, God is with us and he knows us better than we even know ourselves. I had a friend once who said, when I look up at the stars, I'm convinced there can't be a God. Because the universe is just so big and we're so tiny. It would, believe, it would be like an ant believing that a human being or an elephant had a purpose and a plan for their life. It doesn't even make sense. And I said, I really understand that. But when I look up in the stars, I feel infinitely significant. Because I think of the size and the scale and the immensity of the universe. And like David, I come to a different conclusion. What is a human being that you are mindful of me? That you would visit me? That you would make yourself intimately acquainted with me? So David says that God's presence is incarnate to the human life. That God has every right to say he's experienced what you've experienced because his presence is actually going with you, experiencing it as you. Now, we would not believe this unless the incarnation happened in a particular place and at a particular time. 
At the fullness of time, Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law, Paul says. What was Christ demonstrating? Christ was demonstrating that the universal truth of God's presence could be made particular, and that our feeling like, does God really understand me? Does God really understand what it's like to be me? Has God really gone through the limitations of feeling tired and feeling hungry and feeling grumpy because you're tired and hungry? And so the universal truth of God's abiding presence in all things becomes particular in a person. But the miracle of incarnation is not simply that Christ came as one person in history. The miracle is that through the death and resurrection of Christ, his life is actually our lives for all of human history. God steps into history to let us know that all along he has been intimately acquainted with us and with our ways. He knows us and he knows our heart and he walks with us regardless of whether or not we're aware of him. How thoroughly you know me, Lord. You formed every bone in my body when you created me in the secret place, carefully, skillfully shaping me from nothing to something. You saw who you created me to be before I became me. Before I'd ever seen the light of day, the number of days was planned for me, already recorded in your book. Every single moment you are thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought. Oh God, your desires toward me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. When I awake each morning, you're still with me. See, there's a way that David discovered through wonder and through thankfulness, of leaning into this awareness of the abiding, intimate, incarnate presence of God. And then there's a way of life that leads away from this awareness. God's abiding presence is everywhere, sustaining all things. But it's not the universal truth of this that brings us life. It's an awareness that brings a different frame for reality upon us. By best estimates, there's only about a billion people on the earth who proclaim to be Christians. The large majority of people who have ever lived do not claim to consciously know God as revealed in Christ. Do you ever wonder what God is doing with them? There's a seven-year-old Hindu girl in India right now who just went to temple. She's probably sleeping now, but she went to temple about eight hours ago. There are children in the cancer ward in Saskatoon who were never raised to believe in God. There are atheists meeting in Europe, having forums and discussions around scientific principles in order to move government policy toward rationalism and humanism. 
There's people in South America who are fighting for their lives. Have you ever wondered what the Spirit of God, if God is in all people, sustaining them, giving them life? If every single thing in creation lives and moves and has its being in God. If Christ is the source of life for the universe, then what is happening to the large majority of people who do not claim to know him and are not aware of him? Has this thought crossed anyone else's mind but me? Am I the only one who has asked this question? I said the other week that God's agenda for humanity is not to make everyone into professing Christians. God's agenda for humanity is to make humanity truly and completely free. Paul says it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And this particularity of incarnation, when God steps into the human condition and reveals that he is not just able to live one life, but that through one life, many lives, all lives are sustained. They're revealed to be mysteriously participating in the divine life of God. This person, Christ, he liberates humanity, and most of humanity is not conscious of what he has accomplished for them. But strangely enough, I am not always that conscious of what Christ has done for me either. But David, in this passage, he meditates on the presence of God, and he becomes aware that there is a way of moving through the universe where God illuminates his life and his nature, where God's presence is not absent from him or indifferent to him, but is rather fully ingrained in what he's going through, and that light illuminates the true condition of his heart and leads him into freedom. I would like to suggest to you that the way the Spirit is moving on the earth for the seven billion people who do not claim to know him and the one billion who do, the way the Spirit is moving on the earth is the Spirit is moving to illuminate the heart of every individual so that every individual can both Believe and receive what Christ has accomplished. The moment of salvation, the moment of regeneration, is merely the cherry on top of a whole bunch of experiences and a whole bunch of conditions that have to happen as people become aware of the God who has always been present and loving toward them. And this God is so humble that he doesn't always give himself a name. And this God is so humble that he doesn't demand that we serve him. This God is so humble that he quietly and patiently keeps leading people toward freedom. John chapter 1 talks about the incarnation. And it says that the incarnation is like a light that illuminates every life. And what I've been discovering over the past two years is that even though I profess to be a Christian, even though I profess to know what Christ has done for me, I actually don't have always the same 
Even though I claim to know all this stuff consciously, I am often ignorant of how the light of Christ is illuminating my heart. The light of Christ is not just a light in history, a thing that happened on the outside of me that I must believe in. The light of Christ is actually illuminating inside of my heart in all the secret places where a guy like David and a guy like Connor might want to hide. Here's another psalm that I want to quickly read to you. Not the whole thing, just one verse that's kind of become a theme for me. Psalm 51 verse 6 says this, I know that you delight to set your truth deep in my spirit, so come into the hidden places of my heart and teach me wisdom. Verse 23, David says of Psalm 139, God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there's any path of pain I am walking on and lead me back to your glorious everlasting ways, the path that brings me back to you. This is the path that the presence of God has all of humanity on. The path is he is the light that is illuminating the true nature of our hearts. And he is making us aware of the ways we live and the ways we think that lead us toward pain and brokenness. And he is bringing us into freedom from those things so that we can more truly flourish in his image and likeness. There's a way of life that leads toward love and it starts by becoming aware of the God who is already aware of everything about you. Isn't this a weird mystery? David says, you know everything about me. You know my whole life. You know every single moment in it. You know my heart like an open book. So come into my heart and read my life and let me know what's going on within me. This is an amazing amount of self-awareness from David. It's a self-awareness that even though I profess to be a Christian, I don't often have. But what I've discovered is that the Spirit of God is in every place with every person leading their heart toward true freedom. And how is he doing that? He's doing that by drawing them toward the light of self-awareness. Now, when I say self-awareness, what I don't mean is just self-help. What I don't mean is just, oh, I understand my personality a little bit better. What I'm talking about is I'm talking about the way the Spirit helps people see that they were born in God and they are returning to God. This way of being in the world, being aware of the Spirit, leads us to confront the brokenness in our own life and in our own thinking. And it happens whether or not we profess to know Christ or not. Luke 15, then Jesus said, once there was a father with two sons, the younger son came to his father and said, father, don't you think it's time to give me your share of the estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. 
Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer that in that country, in that country to hire him. The, far, the farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing to eat the slop given to the pigs, because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing. Many other translations say, when he came to himself. He thought, there are many workers in my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back home to my father's house and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your employees. So the young son set off for home. Here's the interesting thing about this parable. Jesus is explaining what the kingdom of God is like, and he shares this story of a faithful father who has two sons who do not perceive him correctly. Nobody in the story understands what the father is really like. And both sons are, by the end of the story, invited to come back home. All of humanity does not understand what the Father is really like, and all of humanity is being invited back home. But the journey back home does not start when the son remembers his father. The story of the prodigal son really shifts when the son comes to himself. You can live your whole life and never come to yourself. You can live your whole life on automatic without self-awareness, without knowing the condition of your own heart. Like David said, trying to hide in the shadows where you think God isn't. Living a life that's motivated by shame, by impulse, by desire, by opinion, by assumption. You can live your entire life on this cycle. And sometimes it's only when you end up eating pig slop. It's only when your life goes sideways and things go wrong. That you end up coming to yourself. Before anyone can come to Jesus, they must first come to themselves. And so the prodigal son rehearses a story that he's going to tell his father, and it's a story built upon shame. The story goes like this. I have made a mistake. I wanted you to be dead. <laughs> I took all your money. I ruined your business. I'd like to come home now, please, so that I can eat. And so that you could treat me like one of your hired hands. My question for you is this. Did the son actually repent? Did he change his mind about his father or was he hungry? See, the shame that's informing his thinking has led him to come up with a solution for the problem he has. Which is that even my father's hired hands eat better than I'm eating. His view of his father maybe hasn't changed. But more importantly, his view of himself hasn't changed. Here's what happens regardless. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar, and great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him. He swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love. 
Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I could never deserve to be your son. Just let me be. The father interrupted and said, Son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, Quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I will place it on his shoulders. Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will place it on his finger. And bring out the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate. For this beloved son of mine was once dead, but is now alive again. He was once lost, but now he's found. And everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. The father throws a homecoming party for his son without requiring his son's repentance. The father interrupts the son's shame script. The father affirms the identity of his son without demanding recompense, without asking for punishment. The father does not say, in order for me to forgive you, I'm going to have to lead your other brother out back and kill him for what you did. The father, without waiting for an apology to be over, runs to his son and affirms his identity and welcomes him home. Of course, we know the parable continues with the second son, which is the part that I relate to more because I'd like to think of myself as being part of the father's house. I'm a Christian. I follow God. I know him really well. I'm, 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 I'm right and I'm good and I'm going to go to heaven one day. But I'm also sometimes not ready to see that God is willing to throw humanity a celebration before humanity understands and receives who he really is. The older son was out working in the field when his brother returned, and as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. So he called over to one of the servants and asked, what's going on? The servant replied, it's your younger brother. He returned home, and your father is throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate, so the father came out and pleaded with him, come and enjoy the feast with us. The son said, father, listen, how many, how many years have I been working like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son, and I've never disobeyed you? But you've, thrown a party from, you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you ever given me a goat I could even celebrate with my friends like he's doing now. But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living, and here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. The father said, son... You are always with me, and everything I have is yours to enjoy. It's only right to celebrate like this and be overjoyed because this brother of yours was once dead and gone, but now he's alive and back with us again. He was lost, but now he is found. Do you see how there's really only two ways to misunderstand who the Father is? The second son misunderstands that the father has always been with him and everything the father has is his. The second son misunderstands that his identity and his value was not determined by what he did for his father or what he believed about his father. His identity and value was inherent to simply being a son. And that the same celebration that was happening for his younger brother was available to him the entire time. But like most of humanity... He was unaware 
of the Father's true nature and the Father's goodness. So both brothers have a broken understanding of themselves, which leads to a broken concept of who their father is. But in both cases, the father is faithful. And in both cases, the father throws a celebration. And the story ends in this really strange spot that feels like it's not a conclusion, where because of the older brother's judgment towards the younger brother, he's stuck on the outside of the party. He will not come in and celebrate his brother, and therefore, he is outside of the home. And yet the father stands there outside of the party that he threw for his younger brother, pleading with his son to come inside and celebrate. There are a lot of people who do not know the Father. There are a lot of people who are only willing to come home so that their needs can be met. There are a lot of people who are just learning who they really are because they're only now by the Spirit coming to themselves, and God is already ready to throw them a celebration. He's not waiting for their repentance, He's not waiting for them to get their act together. He is ready to celebrate them simply because they're his and because they're home. And the kind of hell that the older brother inflicts upon himself is the hell of making his younger brother your son, not my brother. And he excludes himself from the celebration God has for all humanity. But even there, in the hell the older brother creates, the father is with him, saying, please, Come into the party. Please join the celebration for what was once lost has now been found again. This is the journey I believe God has all of humanity on. Some of us are more like the younger brother where based on our own broken self-concept we, we, we live an automatic life that lacks self-awareness and is driven by impulsive desires. And it leads us to a whole bunch of brokenness that we keep perpetuating in our lives until we run out of money. And then there are those of us who are like the older brother who are working really hard to try to gain what we already got by being created in his image and likeness. And we strive and we struggle not realizing that we're actually building judgment in our heart toward God and we're building judgment in our heart toward people who we think are on the outside, who are different, who are wrong, who need to get their act together. And both brothers lack an awareness of what's really going on in their heart and both brothers need to come to themselves in order for them to come to the Father. What I discovered about a year and a half ago was that I did not know myself. I lived according to a script I thought God wanted me to perform, and I lived according to an identity that I had, I had imposed upon myself. There were entire things that I didn't give myself permission to think, feelings I didn't give myself permission to feel. I excluded them from me because I knew who Connor Schramm was. Connor Schramm was the good 
saved, set free, spirit-filled believer who had his life figured out. So I lived in denial of the reality that was going on in my heart. I would suppress emotions to such an extent that I would even deny their existence. On the worst day of my life, when someone hurt me more than anyone else could possibly hurt me, I had a spiritual father say, how are you doing? And I said, I'm fine. I just want to love them. Just, I, just, I just want to be Christ to them. He looked at me with probably the most anger he ever had, and it took me off guard. He said, Connor, that's BS. He didn't say BS. And BS doesn't stand for Barb Schramm in this case. He said, you're, anger, you're angry and you're in denial about being angry and you should be angry, but you have no idea where your anger is. I was like, that's not true. I almost rebuked him. It took me about a week. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not angry. And then when I discovered that I was angry, I was angry. And then I was angry, not just at this person, I was angry at everyone. And I was like, uncontrollably angry. Like I was swearing at people when they cut me off in traffic. And it's coming out of my mouth and I'm like, I, this has never ever been me. But the me I had created was a self-concept built around a wrong understanding that led me to both a role that I was playing and an image of the father that wasn't real for me. And I can tell you right now, even as I'm saying this, there are those of you who mentally are agreeing with me. Yeah, God is everywhere. Yeah, God loves me. Yeah, he's, he's a father. He's throwing a party for humanity. Yeah, that's awesome. But you actually don't believe it. And one of the hardest things to do is to confront the unbelief in believers because we spiritualize it and we suppress it and we play the role of the faithful son. And it's only when God celebrates humanity before they repent that our judgment really comes out. Because I've been working so hard to get my life in order. I've been working so hard to do this the right way. And now that someone else seems to be getting everything I wanted without any effort, only now do I realize that I've been pretending this whole time. When I started on this journey, I had to ask myself like crazy questions like, do I actually believe in God? Or did I just inherit this from my parents? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like really asked yourself that question. That's a scary question to ask because it's like the whole foundation of my life. Like I've given up a day a week for 31 years. That's a lot of time. Someone do the math. That's like at least seven years of my life. Maybe not seven because I'd have to be 70. Never mind. I'm bad at math. But when I began to ask myself the question, God, can you really show me what's going on inside of me? Because you can read my heart like a book. But I'm so tempted to hide in these hidden places where I know that you, you are because the darkness is as light to you. But I'm actually willing to let you in and to examine me and to search me and to know me. Some of the stuff you might discover about yourself is going to surprise you. And some of it is not necessarily what you thought you were. But this sort of self-awareness, not just like Again, there's a, there's a very shallow form of self-awareness in culture, right? It's like, take this quiz to find out what Disney princess you are. Oh, I'm an Ariel. That's, that's not the kind of self-awareness we're talking about here. 
We're talking about the examination of the heart where you give God permission to search your depths so that as your self is revealed, your truest self can be found. The father says to the older son, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. That's the reality of the situation. But his own perception of himself and his father have left him outside of the party. And Jesus says that in the final day and in the final judgment, there are going to be those people who have thought, I've lived my whole life for God this whole time. And they actually didn't live their life for God the whole time. They lived it for themselves. They claimed to be believers, but they performed a script of what it meant to follow God for self-gain. And they live outside the party because God has opened his arms to all humanity and he's inviting everyone to the homecoming. We're talking about the summer of the soul. And if I had more time, I would tell you the whole story of my journey of self-discovery. It was the most painful, uncomfortable year and a half of my life, (laughs) two years of my life. But it has become so rewarding and enriching. But what I wanted to tell you today was simply this. On this journey of the soul... I want you to know what the Holy Spirit is actually doing in you and everyone else. Like you and everyone else you walk past when you go through the mall. He's bringing you on a journey of true self-awareness. He's, before he reveals himself, he's revealing you to yourself. He's making you aware that you're made in his image and likeness on the most fundamental and foundational level of your being. And first you have to wade through a whole bunch of BS to get there. You have to discover that some of your instincts are wrong and some of your desires are actually compensating for some inner brokenness in your past. You have to discover that some of your memories taught you the wrong lesson. You have to discover that some of your assumptions aren't true. That sometimes you think you believe something that you actually don't believe. And you have to let those things be stripped away from you. It's actually called crucifixion. It's the death of the self-concept you have to embrace the life that comes in Christ. I I had to minister to someone in our community who had a loved one walk away from faith. And they said, I just don't understand. I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand what God is doing. And I said, well... You have to know something very important. The Holy Spirit is not just trying to get them to confess faith again. The Holy Spirit is now taking them on a little bit of a detour that includes a period where they don't profess to believe, but it's probably necessary in order for them to confront the brokenness they have lived with from the very beginning that they were never able to deal with when they were pretending to be the person you thought they were. So how do we work with God who wants to illuminate our heart, who wants to take us to the light? Here are some things that you can do to start this journey of the heart. You can journal. (laughs) Like I journal every morning. I write three pages every morning, no matter what. Happy, sad, indifferent. If I have nothing to write, I write about how I have nothing to write. 
but I get three pages down every morning because if I don't get what's in my heart out of my heart, I will not feel human. Here's another practice that that illuminates the heart. Experiencing nature. I I said this um, the other week, but it bears repeating. Jesus said, be anxious about nothing. Look at the sparrows, how your heavenly Father looks after them, and not one of them falls to the ground without your Father knowing. Look at the lilies of the field, the wild lilies, how they're clothed in more glory than Solomon. And your heavenly Father doesn't make them toil or spin. He looks after them. I realized I had anxiety in my life because I never actually considered the lilies. Like mentally, I thought, oh yeah, flowers are cool. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, go for a walk and look at the flowers until the nature of the flower changes the nature and condition of your heart. I discovered that I actually struggle with a lot of anxiety. And one of the reasons why I struggled with anxiety is in this position, you end up confronting a lot of people a lot of the time. Pastoring is basically confrontation as a career. Okay, my self-concept was this. I'm good at confrontation. I can talk to anyone about anything. And I was used to it. I confronted my teachers when I was in high school. I confronted my friends about their bad choices. One time when I was five years old, I confronted a friend about believing in Santa Claus when Christ was the reason for the season. I'm only confronting anyone about anything. You know what I discovered in the past year and a half? I hate confrontation. I hate it. Just because I'm good at it doesn't mean I like it. It sucks. And I feel this fluttery feeling in my chest that feels like I'm losing my breath. And I'm like, what is going on with me? And Leisha's one time, she's like, you guys, you have to go lay down. Like, I'm worried you're going to hit your head. Because I was like starting to get woozy. And I laid down and I was like, God, what's going on with me? Am I getting sick? Is something wrong with me? Is this a demon? God's like, no, you don't like confrontation. And your blood sugar's probably low. Some of us are actually struggling with anxiety and we don't realize that his load is easy and his burden is light because we haven't actually walked with him through the fields where the wild lilies are to discover that God is actually not expecting as much of you as you're expecting from yourself. We can tell other people all the time, God loves you. He's, he doesn't expect anything from you. And yet we hold ourselves to a higher standard. <laughs> Another thing that helps me on this journey of the heart is creating something. When you create something, you discover what was in your heart all along. Like, I'm, I, the bandwidth of creation is really broad. Like, it can be creating a human being. <laughs> Like we're having another baby right away. But it can also be like, I was, I was watercolor painting with my son two days ago. And I find myself irritated when I go out of the lines. I'm a 31-year-old man painting Peppa Pig. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And yet I'm frustrated when I go outside the lines. What does that say about myself? The Holy Spirit is with me to lead me to me. And I'm, I'm trying to watercolor paint this thing, and I'm like, I want this to be perfect. Why do I want this to be perfect? Why does it matter? He doesn't seem to care. My son is just putting red over everything. And then he's like, look at this, Dad. Peppa's vomiting. Red juice. And I'm like, he's free and fully himself. He's, he's actualized. 
And I'm over here like, Peppa's got to be perfect, Connor. <laughs> the final thing I, w- I want to show you, uh, Josh, if you could put this slide up. It's called, it's called, I call it the heart tool. It's, I was in therapy for a year. Um, I sought out my spiritual fathers and mothers. I received counseling. I received prayer ministry. And um, on this journey, everything compressed and condensed into this one thing that I literally, I have it on my phone. It, it reminds me, oh, I need to do a heart check. And so I literally press a button and it asks me these questions and I write down the answer. And this is another way I journal throughout the day, okay? I call it a heart tool. You can call it whatever you want. You don't even have to use this. This is just what I do every day, okay? Again, this is the kind of self-awareness that I believe the Holy Spirit is leading us to so that when we come to ourselves, we can finally come home to the party. I ask myself this question. How do I feel? I feel blank. Now, when I ask myself this question, every answer on all of these is perfectly acceptable. This is judgment-free. You cannot be judgmental and curious at the same time. So to move towards self-awareness with the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit introduces you to you, means that you're going to have to be honest in a way that's going to make you uncomfortable almost all the time. Because you can't live on automatic anymore. So how do you feel? I feel bad. I feel sad. I feel mad. If you don't know how you feel, then just describe how you're feeling in your body. I feel weight on my shoulders. I feel tension in my chest. I feel itchy. You might want to see a doctor if that one lasts a long time. You simply write down what you're feeling. What is the experience you're having of being on the planet right now? You get to live out another incarnation with God. It actually is perfectly valid to just capture some of that. (laughs) To just make a record of what it's like to move through the universe. You've only got one life to live. You might as well pay attention. I feel because I. Now the word I there is very important. The reason why the word I that is there is because other people can't make you feel anything. Most of the time when I say I feel, I want to answer it because of something else. I feel mad because that person cut me off. That's actually not why you feel mad. It's why you think you feel mad, but why you actually feel mad is because when they cut you off, it violated your self-concept, and the Holy Spirit is trying to lead you to you. And so I discovered that when someone cuts me off, I feel mad because I'm already running late because I feel ashamed that I'm actually bad with time management. And because I feel ashamed that I'm late, I'm mad at them because it's easier to be mad at them than to be ashamed of me. (laughs) I can tell I'm making some people uncomfortable. (laughs) I feel hungry because I... Because I haven't eaten? No, I just ate. I feel hungry because I, I feel tension after that conversation with my wife, and I'm looking to comfort myself. I want, again, judgment-free. I want, what do you want? There's a whole bunch of things in my wants list that I would never write down. I would write down things like this at the beginning. I've done this for a year and a half. My wants were like, I want breakthrough. I want breakthrough from the Spirit of God. I want hope for tomorrow. It's like, no, I want chocolate. I want to sleep. I want to watch TV until I can't feel feelings. 
Don't spiritualize your life. God is actually trying to humanize your life. You're already spiritual. He's not ashamed of your human condition. He's not ashamed of your human experience. And to be honest with you, you can even write down things that are not appropriate to write down in this category. I want another drink. I want a cigarette. I want to look at pornography. I want to call up my boss and curse them out for four minutes straight. Acknowledging your desires is not the same as acting on them. And acknowledging your desires does not mean that they identify who you are. So many people are caught in brokenness because they think their desires are their identity. And it's only a sign that their human condition is just far too shallow. If you define yourself by your desires, you're always going to end up with the shallow end of the human condition. You're made in the image and likeness of God. You're not defined by your sexual desires, your hunger desires, your, your emotional desires. They are real things that you cannot deny. I'm not saying just pretend they're gone. That's what I did for like 30 years and it really messed me up. Don't pretend they're not real. Acknowledge them. And then don't put them on the throne of your life. Then the, second, the next question I ask myself is, what do I need? Like, what do I, okay, I know what I want now, so then what do I need? Now, that's a different question. It's a different question because I have to ask myself, to my own best estimate, what would transform my current condition into the kind of life that I long for? And again, I could spiritualize this for you. I could say, I need the Lord to come through for me. I need to have an encounter. Those things might be true, and they very well might be good. And sometimes I do write those things. But more often than not, what I discover that I need is actually connected to some inner brokenness, to some pain signal that I have been ignoring based on my wrong self-concept. So like, for example, when I'm feeling anxious and I realize that I need to eat something, in order for my blood sugar to change? That is an awareness that I am human. And that if you don't eat in a while, you are going to feel kind of hangry and anxious. And maybe you're going to struggle more with life. Like, I, <laughs> I used to seek my parents out for ministry when I was struggling emotionally. And the first thing they always ask me, and still do, and I'm 31, is, how are you sleeping? And I'm like, what? How are you sleeping? Have you, have you had enough sleep? Did you have enough sleep last night, last week? It's not about sleep. It's about my heart. No, it's actually about going to sleep. One time I was really struggling when I was at Bethel, and I, I, I sought the Lord, and I heard someone say, you go home, God's going to encounter you. So I went home, and I'm like, I'm going to fast and pray until I receive breakthrough. And I knelt, I knelt down on my bed, like by my bed, and then I kind of, and I was like, wow, it's, it's kind of comfy, like, I rolled over onto my back, and I'm like, well, I'm just going to soak here. And the, I, heard, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, you're about to go under heart surgery. And then I think I fell asleep for like three hours. <laughs> and I woke up, and I felt great because I had a three-hour nap. Now, I put this, this one in to make it a little bit spiritual, but th this question in love says, I only want you to write down what the Holy Spirit says to you if the Holy Spirit is speaking. Okay? 
So oftentimes we get to this point and I go, and love says, and I'm like, I don't know what love says. And that's okay. But the only thing I want to add to it is just ask love the question. Like ask the presence of the Lord who is in all things, filling all things with love, with affirmation. Ask God how he thinks and how he feels about you. And if you can't think of what that is, then make something up that sounds like the very best thing that the very best person would say. That's actually not illegal. Like he's a better father than your human father ever was. He's a better mother than your human mother ever was. So you are actually permitted to go, the person who cares about me the most, what would they say to me if they got to listen to everything I was thinking and if they felt everything I was feeling? What would they want to tell me? Write that down and that's probably closer to what love says than what you could come up with. And finally, and then I will. What am I going to do? You actually are allowed, through self-awareness, you are allowed to record how you will respond to the condition of your heart. What I discovered was that I have to use this tool. I have to check in on my heart like at least three times a day in order to feel like normal. And what I discovered was that as I went on this journey with the Holy Spirit, suddenly his way was easy. His burden was light. Suddenly, I felt myself on the way back to the Father's house to enjoy the party because I realized that this whole time, God was with me, illuminating my heart, drawing me towards the life that first would allow me to discover who I really was to him, how he was always with me, and how everything he has is mine. And through this process, I began to discover that when I moved away from my own broken concept of myself and into an awareness of his abiding presence with me, I really did feel the love and light that I longed for right from the very beginning. So, what I would like is I would like us to be a culture of vulnerability. This is really about vulnerability. And what I'd like is for us to be a culture of self-awareness. And what that means is, can I be really clear in closing? What that means is if you, if you stop believing in God please don't stop believing in community. Like, if you actually say, you know what? I'm on this journey, and I am now, I am now internally going crazy. <laughs> please, walk with us. If in this journey you go, you know what? I actually want to cash in and go visit the city like the younger brother did. I'd actually like to get my own way. I'd actually like to follow these desires and see where they lead me. It will probably, it will probably, the cognitive dissonance will be difficult, but I beg you, please do not depart from relationships. <laughs> I used to tell my youth this all the time. I'm like, if you want to start doing drugs, I don't like that and I don't support that, but please don't stop coming to youth group. <laughs> like, please come to youth group high. And they're like, what? I'm like, I would rather you be here. I would rather you be close than be clean. And finally, a cultural vulnerability about the heart means that we are going to throw a party for people who are imperfect and have not yet repented. And we're going to embrace the mess of that because it's going to be messy. The only reason why Jesus told this story was because he was hanging out with drunks and tax collectors and prostitutes, and the religious people wanted to know why he wasn't condemning them. He said, well, let me tell you a story. 
You know why I'm here at this party with these people? Because the Father is always drawing people toward a homecoming. And it doesn't start by him holding people out here until they figure their lives out and clean up their messes. It starts with him saying, come home to me. Let me put my robe on your shoulders. Let me put my ring on your finger. Let me cover you with my love. Whether or not you listen to me or hear any of this, I want you to know the Father is with you. The Lord loves you. And regardless of whether or not you were ever aware of yourself or of his abiding presence in all things, you are still being drawn towards the light. You are on a crash course with love, whether you like it or not. So is everybody else. So is the Hindu girl who's seven years old and probably sleeping right now. So is the high number of atheists all across Europe. (laughs) Right? It's like now a deeply secular society. So are all the people who are out there who didn't come in here this morning. We are all being funneled towards the love of God. We are all being drawn toward the Father's house. And I would just invite you to just begin this process of coming to yourself so that you can come to the Father. Because who he is and who you are are inexorably linked. He's with you, leading you and loving you. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. Because that is how you were made. And that is the life he sustains within you.